1956, the first opening. When I was growing up in Tibet, and especially after my serious engagement in studies of classical Buddhist thought and practice from the age of 15, I used to feel that my own Buddhist religion was the best. I thought that there simply could not be any other faith tradition that could rival the depth, sophistication, and inspirational power of Buddhism. Other religions must at best be so-so. Looking back, I feel embarrassed by my naivete, although it was the view of an adolescent boy immersed in his own inherited religious tradition. Yes, I was vaguely aware of the existence of a great world religion called Christianity that propounds the way of salvation through the life of its Savior, Jesus Christ. In fact, as a child, I had heard the story of how some Christian priests had once established a mission in western Tibet in the 17th century. There was also a small community of Tibetan Muslims right up until modern times who had lived in Lhasa City for over four centuries. As for Hindus and Jains, followers of the two other major religions native to India, I was convinced that the philosophical arguments found in the classical Buddhist critiques of their tenets had effectively demonstrated the superiority of the Buddhist faith centuries ago. Needless to say, such naivete could be sustained only so long as I remained isolated from any real contact with the world's other religions. The first time I had any direct contact with a real Hindu was when a sadhu, an Indian holy man, with matted hair and white lines of ash painted on his forehead, appeared at the Potala Palace when I was a child. He was shouting, Dalai Lama, Dalai Lama, and appeared to have wanted to see me. Of course, he spoke no Tibetan, and nobody in the vicinity spoke any Hindi. There was quite a commotion as my attendants, bodyguards, and all sorts of onlookers tried to stop him. Nobody had any idea who or what he was, or from what religious background he came. The pivotal moment of contact came when I had the opportunity to visit India for the first time in 1956. Before this, the only other country I had been to was China, which was then in the full swing of communism. It was the Crown Prince of Sikkim, in his capacity as the president of the Mahabodhi Society, as well as the special committee set up by the government of India to organize the 2,500th anniversary of the Buddha's death, known as the Parinirvana, who officially invited me to India. My spiritual colleague, the late Panchanlama, who later suffered a lot in the wake of the communist takeover of Tibet, yet did so much for the Tibetan people until his untimely death in Tibet in 1986, also joined me on this historic visit to India. During more than three months' stay in India at that time, I had the honor to meet many people from all walks of life, as well as from all kinds of religious backgrounds. The president of India, Dr. Rajendra Prasad, graciously engaged me in deep conversation on several occasions. A noted legal scholar, India's first president was also a deeply religious man who took seriously the historical legacy of India as a birthplace of some of the world's great religions. His humility and his deep humanity made me feel that in being with him, I was in the presence of a truly spiritual man, a being dedicated to the ideal of a genuinely selfless life of service. India's vice president then was Dr. Sarvapali Radhakrishnan, a famed scholar of Indian philosophy and religion. Speaking with him was like being treated to an intellectual feast. On the personal level, getting to know the president and vice president, 
as well as Pandit Jawaharlal Nehru, India's first prime minister, made me feel somehow close to the great being Mahatma Gandhi, whom we Tibetans used to call at that time Gandhi Maharaja, literally, Gandhi, the great king. One meeting that left an enduring memory was a surprise visit from a senior Jain master who came to see me with an assistant monk. I remember clearly being surprised by the asceticism of these two Jain monks. It was, I later came to know, part of their everyday lifestyle always to sit on hard surfaces and not on soft cushions. Since we were in an official guest house, there was hardly any furniture without soft padding on the seats. So finally, the monks sat on the coffee table. We had a lengthy conversation on the similarities between Buddhism and Jainism, which historians often refer to as twin religions. Here, for the first time in my experience, was a real Jain practitioner whose articulation of his own faith tradition had little resemblance to the characterization of Jain views in the scholastic texts and refutations I had studied in my youth. After the official celebrations of the Buddha's Parinirvana, I was able to go on pilgrimage to the ancient Buddhist holy sites, especially Bodhgaya, where the Buddha attained enlightenment, Lumbini, where he was born, and Sarnath, near Varanasi, where he preached his first sermon on the Four Noble Truths. Face to face with the holy stupa at Bodhgaya, and standing in front of the Bodhi tree, which is descended from the very tree under which the Buddha attained enlightenment more than 2,500 years ago, I was moved to tears. This holy place is revered by Buddhists the world over. In Tibet, there was even a custom of sculpting miniature models of the stupa at Bogaya as objects of veneration. In my first autobiography, written soon after my going into exile in India, I described my emotions when I first saw the Bodhgaya stupa. From my very early youth, I had thought and dreamed about this visit. Now, I stood in the presence of the Holy Spirit, who had attained Mahaparinirvana, the highest nirvana, in this sacred place, and had found for all mankind the path to salvation. As I stood there, a feeling of religious fervor filled my heart and left me bewildered with the knowledge and impact of the divine power which is in all of us.